The Business Lounge. No job titles, no agendas, no thongs. I'm Simon Reynolds and I'm in an imaginary airport business lounge with the world's most successful people waiting for their flight. Business people have to travel and sometimes delays happen and we can take advantage of that. You get to hear 45 minutes of one guest in conversation before their flight boards. You'll hear their stories, the triumphs, the challenges and the lessons they've learned along the way. Welcome to the Business Lounge. The Business Lounge. Hi, folks, and welcome to another edition of The Business Lounge, where we get to talk with top performers and get their wisdom on how we can better succeed in business. And today we have an absolutely fascinating guest, an officer in the elite world of the Army Special Forces, the best of the best. We'll hear what it takes to lead people at a truly elite level and what we as business people can learn from the military's top fighting units. Now, normally at this time, I would tell you the name of our guest, but in this case, I literally am not allowed to do that. The identity of members of the Australian Special Forces must remain secret. They're not allowed to reveal their name for security reasons. So with that in mind, I'll just say welcome to Michael, and thank you so much for agreeing to be here at the Business Lounge. And thanks for that introduction, Simon. It's great to see you again, as always. Fantastic. Really excited to have you here and I know our listeners will be absolutely enthralled uh, by what you've got to say. First of all, why does the army or the special forces units inside the army not allow your name to be revealed? Yeah, it's uh, it might be a bit of a surprise. We're certainly not spies. We don't, certainly don't disguise our identity in everyday life. But there was at one point a threat to families and friends and that sort of thing here in Australia. And so the decision was taken to make it just that little bit more difficult to identify exactly who we are. And so there's a protocol and it's become almost a custom among Mm -hmm. our community Mm -hmm. just so not to announce yourself and particularly while you're still in uniform, which is the case for me. Right. Now, it's a pretty unusual career choice. A lot of people would graduate and go into business or law or dentistry. You chose the army and special branches of the army. You had always dreamed of going to special forces? Yeah, I did martial arts as a kid and our founder had been a special forces soldier in the UK and that kind of gave me that sort of idea. My Mm. old man had fought the Second World War and that was part of the influence. Uh, But that, I think, is a sort of a standard little boy wants to join the army story and uh, certainly in my late my mid to late teens I had no intention of following up on that and then at around age 20 I met some people who were actually doing it and they started to describe what life was really like that it was a life of physical challenge a bit of intellectual challenge teamwork and all that sort of thing and I thought and it paid quite well and I thought that sounds pretty good so I gave it a try and just got sucked into that world that way yeah from all accounts, it's the training to even get in is incredibly tough. Look, it is. I was an infantry platoon commander for three years, and in the second year there, I trained up for SA selection, injured myself and had to withdraw, trained up again in the third year, managed to manage the, in- the injury, and so in my fourth year out of Duntroon, I, I went for SA selection. Now, I'd been living a life where one carries his house on his back and is armed mm. half of his life in the field 
living on the food and water you can carry, training quite hard when in that barracks environment. And I lost 17 kilos in three weeks. And I was a proper mess at the end of that selection course. Really? Yeah. The idea behind it is they want to subject you to extraordinary physical and psychological stress and just see whether you can just keep yourself together and work out what's going to, what you're going to do about it next. Yeah. A lot of people think that the key sort of selection criteria is all just physical fitness. Uh That's more of a critical enabler. Once you meet that baseline, they're quite happy to simply completely trash you because they know the chances of them, if you're, if you're at that level of strength and endurance, the chances of them inflicting a serious injury on you over the course of the selection course mm. is quite low. I know of at least one fatal casualty on the selection course. My God. A person who had a, a bit of a heart problem that, that yeah. he just wasn't aware of, still a pretty young man, and he just died on one of the, the activities, literally just dropped dead. Wow. And roughly what percentage of people who go into that selection process succeed? I think around our times, about 10%, maybe 10%. something like that. I think for the officers, the, the story was 200 applied, 150 applications were actually processed, 50 were paneled for the course. Mm-hmm. On... The, the Thursday or Friday prior to the course, 38 were still coming. 12 had already injured themselves training. Wow. I think on our course, only 26 of the 38 showed up on day one. 12 finished and nine were selected. Wow. Yeah. Wow. It's quite a whittling process, yeah. Yeah. An outsider's view of special forces is that these guys are super tough in their mind as well as their body. What type of mental state do you find that most of the special forces have that make them succeed in, the, in that kind of environment? It's what psychologists call an internal locus of control. And we've actually done studies on this on some of the most, the most successful of the junior leaders in our organisations, where they did psychometric profiling on them when they were first admitted to SF, mm-hmm. and then at the five-year and ten-year mark. So we have some hard data behind this. It is very much that psych, that, that internal locus of control. There are physical attributes, academic attributes, but the, that key characteristic that they all had was an internal locus of control. And so on the selection courses, and I'm not letting any cats out of the bag when I say this because it's there are documentaries you can watch on YouTube, open source, about mm. special forces selection. You can see how the Americans do it, how the Brits and how we do it. We all do it pretty much the same way. And you take... So so very fit young people to begin with because you need them to be fit to be sure they're still going to be okay on day last. Yep. Yep. That's really a safety and duty of care issue as much as it is a performance issue, yeah? And then push them through activities that are not necessarily quite possible or they're extremely challenging and introduce many what we refer to as false crests. You have, a, you have a climb a big mountain and you think you're at the top, but then you come up over a crest and there's so much more mountain to go. That, that's the thing that they orchestrate on the course. And I, I, I can, it doesn't really help the listeners if they're considering doing this. It doesn't really help them to know that. Yeah, sure. Because on the day, they still have to do it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. Huh. That was a joke when, when I was a junior officer preparing for selection there was a, a more senior officer who had already worked in the regiment was 
working in our barracks nearby. He was just posted outside special ops, yeah. So we got to know him a bit and we asked him, what's the course like? And he said, oh, it's terrible. You'll hate it. <laughs> he said, what do they make you do? They said, fellas, I could tell you. He said, fellas, firstly, the 18 days is set up in modules and the modules are swapped out each year. So no two courses are quite the same, firstly. Right. And they do that to maintain that sense of uh, you know, surprise, some would say shock, but surprise. Yeah. Mm. And he said, I could tell you what you have to do all day, every day, and it won't help you at all. One bit, you still have to do it, and it's yeah. awful. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So it's really a lot of its resilience, the ability to yeah. keep going. And when you say internal locus of control, you're saying, regardless of what's happening outside me, I'm in control of myself. That's exactly right. They're in... Th- their primary internal reference point is what the, how they see themselves in the world, uh-huh. not how others see them, very which good. is super important if you're in a very small team, say, behind enemy lines. You can't really afford to be buffeted by your environment. Yeah. You need to behave as though it's your area of operations, not something that belongs to somebody else. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. And do you think there are many similarities between running a team of commandos or elite fighters and running a business? You work with a lot of startups at the moment, don't mm-hmm. you, Simon? This sure. will resonate with you, I'm sure. Is the, one of the other characteristics that was very important was tolerance of ambiguity. Mm-hmm. Now, they, the old, there's an old adage that no plan ever survives contact with the enemy. I'm pretty sure no business plan ever survives contact with the market either. For sure. I do hold an MBA and and I have run a couple of businesses when I was outside the military. And so I don't have your level of experience, of course, mate, but I do have some experience of how mm. this works. There is no such thing as a perfect knowledge of a market. Mm. There is no such thing as a perfect knowledge of an enemy or of a competitor. A competitor can invest in different technologies or different people without you knowing. They're under no obligation to warn you as to what they're going to do. And it's the same when you're in that sort of more contentious political violence situation. And for special operations, our organisation is far more likely to be committed to more ambiguous circumstances as mm-hmm. well. You're half expecting violence. You're not necessarily expecting violence. So your teams are still constrained by potentially the laws of the host nation, maybe not even the laws of armed combat, maybe just their own domestic law, uh, and at the same time, serious violence way beyond what those laws were designed for Mm. could break out at any moment. You need to be very careful about dealing with that ambiguity. I always think that a great entrepreneur is really just a great problem solver. And from outside, often businesses look like they're going well, but having gone into a few businesses that had good reputations, you can see that there's a lot going wrong all the time. A great business person's ability to handle problems, I think, is a similarity between what I assume would be happening in in special forces all the time. Yeah, problem solver. Yeah. Yeah. And that on selection courses during performance appraisals. And when we have non-special forces people coming to work with us, Mm. that's what we say to them. We need you to be a problem solver, a self-starter. If you see a gap, fill it. Don't ask to be told because we just don't have time for that nonsense. Just get on with it. Yeah. And if you make a decision that could be justified with against the time and resources and information that you had available to you at the time and with what you had available to you, it looks like a sound decision and turns out to be a bit of a disaster, we'll back you. It'll be fine. But we carefully select those people, though. They're selected on performance. And is there any part 
of being a leader in a special forces unit that would make you, in your opinion, because you've had experience in both areas, not so good at business? Oh, that's an interesting question. I, I think perhaps it would speak to somebody's fundamental motivation. I think if you enter business with a fundamental motivation to just make money, mm. you may or may not be so successful because you're not starting with the client in mind. Mm. If you're completely hooked on the um, high-risk, high-payoff operations that, that we get involved in, and that's the sort of thing that gets you out of bed in the morning and makes your heart beat faster, you might not find that intrinsic motivation in anything else. Yeah. A violinist is a violinist. A carpenter is a carpenter. And you may find it's high-end classified and well-resourced government work that's only available there. It's not mm. like you can go and hire yourself out to a different government. You just can't. That's not on. Although they can contract to just like our friends, like the Brits or the Americans, that yep. sort of thing. But yep. they won't have you doing the sorts of things you were doing in uniform here in Australia either. They have their own uniform people for that sort of thing. Mm. But you end up doing the jobs they don't want to do. Mm. It's not the same. <laughs> What about the transition that, that you would have seen a lot of your friends in the forces make where they're running this elite unit, they've got tens of millions of dollars worth of cutting-edge equipment, they're in control of numerous people, and then they get out in, into the normal world. Do they have troubles with that? Or is it, is it relatively seamless because of their talents and skills? Well, just remember, you reminded me, mate, around the time you and I first met and I first separated from service the first time, I was a sole trader for a while and uh, there were plenty of days when I really wished I still had staff. Yeah, yeah? for sure. When I didn't. As you, suddenly you have to do everything yourself. And uh, it's all very well to say when you're advising startups, that's something, delegate as much as you can and get everything off your table, that sort of thing. That's something I'm very comfortable doing, but when my little enterprise wasn't really resourced to do that, that yeah. was a bit of a challenge. Yeah. And the other thing was the transition from building capability to, in fact, making money. Because mm. delivering value for your clients definitely needs to sit at the heart of what you do. But if it's not profitable, you can't keep doing mm. it. You become a charity yourself. It's nonsense. Mm. And a friend of mine who'd left the army a number of years before I did... I had a beer with him one afternoon just connecting with mates and he said I'll save you a lot of time by telling you this he moved into a a fairly substantially sized HR recruitment firm and he said uh, he found himself obsessing over some of the little details that the sort of details that if we obsessed over them in our at that special ops environment they would actually be very much de-risking high-risk operations. Yep. No doubt about it. Like the detailed preparation for things. But he, he said a lot of that stuff, when it comes down to it actually in the commercial environment, doesn't really matter mm -hmm. because the primary task at the end of every month is to have made money. He said, and we're very task-oriented people. He says, so take that away, mate. He said, if you're not making money, you're not actually in business. Yeah. Uh, Forgetting the military, just there's a lot of people in business that need to remember that. Typically, when you lead people in army uh, operations, how many people are you leading? That's actually a really good question. And it reminds me of a concept that might be quite transferable for some of your listeners. 
we have this term span of command. Mm-hmm. Right? So when I had a couple of hundred people in my organisation towards the end of my first quite long stint in the regular army, mm-hmm. I had a span of command of three. So I had three more junior officers who were my mm-hmm. three junior commanders. Now, in my little headquarters, I had a deputy and a sergeant major and some clerks and an orderly room. They provided all manner of, of administrative support to everybody mm-hmm. and a bit of guidance to everybody, but there were only really three commanders who I dealt with. Mm-hmm. And uh, they say doctrinally, you want your span of command to be between two and seven. Commanders are very much your executive officers in your organisation. Yeah? They're the ones who actually take responsibility for outcomes when dealing with... Um, they're the client-facing leaders, yeah? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So they, t- they take responsibility for outcomes and responsibility for um, profit centres might be another way to look at it. My door was not open to everyone. I was uh, warm and sociable with everybody, but I wasn't really interested in having conversations about problems inside two platoon with anybody other than the commander of two platoon. Yeah. And if you don't, you can become overwhelmed. If you don't, you find yourself getting caught up in the thick of thin things all day. Yeah, yeah. It makes a lot of sense. It reminds me of Jeff Bezos from Amazon's uh pizza rule, which is the group should only be big enough that they can eat one pizza. Uh, Elite fighting units have all sorts of interesting ways to plan missions really well. Can you, obviously there's a whole lot of stuff you can't say, but are there any methods for planning that the military use that that you think would work in business as well? Look, there's some great open source stuff out there that any of your listeners could grab onto that would change the way they think about that to make it more effective Mm -hmm. for them. There are people who write big, thick books about strategy and about long-term planning and consultancy firms that charge a lot of money for that sort of thing. And if you're in, say, oil and gas, where your investment horizons are quite long and your investment quantities are enormous, those investments can be worthwhile. But if you're starting out, say, you and your mate with a small and I'm reminded of a couple of friends of mine, a small boutique consultancy, they are not the characteristics of your business. That is not your planning horizon. Mm-hmm. And so step one in the military appreciation process is a time and space analysis. You need to understand what is my decision horizon? How far do I need to go with this to still be on solid ground before I'm not planning but I'm fantasising about right. things I can't control? Right. Yeah. So that's always step one. And the rest of it is a, a process of being clear about, in commercial terms, your market, your competitors, the extent to which you can be. Don't overinvest in that, but don't underinvest in it either. Look very carefully at the outcomes you're looking for and your key constraints around that. Mm-hmm. Be sure that you understand what constitutes feasibility before you go planning in any more detail any solid options for achieving what you have in mind. Mm -hmm. And always have minimum two options. Always have one that you really like and find something else that's a bit harebrained perhaps Mm -hmm. because you'll invariably find at the end of the process and you'll almost always go with the one that you had in mind at the outset, but you'll learn things about your operating environment from the harebrained option that you can incorporate into your plan to improve it. If there was anything to really take away from the years of that sort of planning stuff I did, it's probably those things. Mm -hmm. Inside the military bubble, it's an extremely dry subject. Have you heard about the strategy of the fighter pilot and uh, Major, later Colonel John Boyd of the US Air Force? Tell us about it. Okay. So John Boyd 
was a US Air Force fighter pilot, did a couple of tours of Korea at the outset of the Korean War, didn't have a particularly a glittering kind of combat career, but thought very deeply about what was going on. And he found that the training of fighter pilots had an aviation safety centre of gravity, not a combat centre of gravity, which had him think very carefully about that. And he came up with this idea that the way you win in air-to-air combat is to out-decide your opponent. Mm-hmm. So faster decisions make for superior air-to-air tactics. His decision cycle, he called an OODA loop for uh, observe, orient, decide, act. And so while every pilot's going through his air-to-air combat, he will make observations of his environment. He'll then orientate himself against the environment that he's just reviewed in his head, the capabilities of his aircraft, the known capabilities of an enemy aircraft. Mm -hmm the objectives that he was given from his boss. And when John Boyd wrote about this, he talked about cultural and genetic aspects of this as well. What's always struck me is that when we're delivering instructions to a team, or we'd refer them as orders in our environment, but instructions to a team to launch a business or launch into a new phase, it's important to understand that some... Your estimates of what's going to happen next are exactly that. They're estimates. They're not predictions. You don't have a crystal ball. And if you over-plan and over-task people, you'll find they'll start to slavishly adhere to everything Mm -hmm. as though you actually knew what was going to happen next. Yep. As opposed to giving them enough information, enough latitude and resources and a clear idea of outcomes to, in fact, oodaloop their way through the activity. They enjoy it more. They have more of a sense of ownership over it. The art for a leader is to take your hands off the controls sufficiently to give them that stimulation and keep them interested but not let the aircraft crash. Okay, so the whole OODA loop, observe, orient, decide, act, is an actual process which teaches special forces people... Or, or in the Air Force, a pilot, to make decisions quickly. And to me, that's something that can easily be applied to business because the world's full of people taking ages to make a decision in business. And the whole concept, I, I think it's really interesting because the whole concept of get good at making fast decisions is incredibly applicable in the business world. I would think, yeah. And what about, read these kind of things about Navy SEALs, etc. They, I think they have a term, a dirt dive, where they go into inordinate detail and trying to visualise what, what could happen. Do you guys do any of that kind of stuff? We really do, yeah, for mm-hmm. everything. They, re- they call it officially a rock drill. It stands for a Rehearsal of Communications Drill. Mm-hmm. So they get people to stand in a room or, or outside of it, roughly oriented to where they're going to be on the ground. Mm-hmm. So, the northern teams and the north end and etc. And they'll go through their planned radio transmissions. So when I reach this particular grid reference and I have a machine gun ready to provide fire support, I'm going to give you this code word. So then they pull out their maps, they think through what that's going to be like. And sometimes a guy will come up and say, you know what, that's going to take me longer than I thought it would. We need to change mm-hmm. the timeline. So you learn about how you're going to conduct the operation from the rehearsal. Right. Yep. Yeah? And that's really what that's all about. It's about learning about and refining the plan from those discussions. So in your experience, having been in both in business 
and special forces. The preparation that occurs with special forces is much deeper than business. Yeah, yeah. And yet the decision-making speed is much faster than most in business. But it's because of the preparation. It's the last thing people expect, actually. Yeah. I really don't like the term think on your feet. Yeah. I don't like that at all. Because they should have pre-thought. Yeah. And then they act with better quality in the actual moment. And maybe it's just a misperception. Maybe some people who say, I, I like to think on my feet, it's because they have at least two, maybe three options for dealing with situations. Mm-hmm. And when they're confronted with circumstances, then they select those options and they move forward. Perfectly legitimate. Mm-hmm. John Boyd would say, tick, tick, young mm-hmm. man, you're on the right track. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there are those who I think believe that it should come down to your personality or mm. your sense of humour or something like that. And those things are all useful. But if that's what you're relying on, you're using hope as a method almost. So what about motivation? What do you think are the keys to keeping team members motivated? Like when you're running a unit, how do you motivate uh, those kind of people? In our world, profitability is the production of capability and capability in the way we think about it. So It's force elements that are configured and trained and equipped to competently carry out the missions that are delegated to us by government. And out in the real world, that whole thing, that the final outcome of everything you do, and refer to this earlier, must be profitability. Mm -hmm. So when I listen to business people talk about that sort of thing, they talk about buying out a company, the first thing they do is they give share options to all the employees, try and get them all to stay go around and pay attention to what people are saying about who's doing a good job and who's not. Pay, mm-hmm. pay attention to those who've been there for a long time who genuinely really understand the business and give them some recognition. Now, in the real world, recognition, the HR sort of crowd will tell you recognition doesn't have to come in a monetary form. And they might be right in a lot of circumstances. But if you're going to share the joy, simple recognition like, and I think this is a, a concept borrowed from us and perhaps misborrowed. We'd, we'd put a medal on someone, we'd promote them to a higher rank, we'd, which gets them paid a bit more and that sort of thing, and recognise them publicly among their peers, that sort of thing. Now, doing all those things, nothing wrong with that. But it's always struck me that our people always have skin in the operational game. Mm. In, the, in, in private enterprise, perhaps skin in the operational game does involve also some sort of share of profitability. If you want people right. thinking about profitability all day long, if you want them thinking about growing the business, they need to understand, firstly, what sort of commercial strategy you have, and secondly, how how they can benefit from helping you implement it. Certainly, using all the levers that we have in the public sector to recognise performance in our soldiers is really what keeps them motivated. So, when it comes down to the day-to-day and you're in a battle or you're in a high stress situation do you are you is the typical special forces officer super hard on these people or is he trying to blend compliments with them and support them with positivity or what's the philosophy of motivation in at that point yeah it's interesting the blokes i've worked with are some of the most personable people i've ever met but out on a two-way range, they couldn't be less interested in small talk mm-hmm. or issues from your childhood mm. or problems with your girlfriend or any of that stuff. They don't care. What they want to hear is short, sharp verbal communications entirely relevant to what we're all out there to do. And, uh, now, there are plenty of times that and we teach this in the crisis consulting that I do 
with some friends of mine on occasion privately, we say to people, there are times when you want to all join hands and sing Kumbaya and have a committee meeting and ask everyone how they're feeling. And there are other times when really that's not important. Mm. And here's how you handle that firmly but politely and make it happen. Don't shout, don't remonstrate, don't carry on. Just look people in the eye and say, no, it's not going to be like that. It's going to be like what I just told you mm. it's going to be like. Go and do that now. Mm. And if it turns out I'm wrong, I'll back you up. But go and do that for me now. Mm. Yeah. 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 Well, that's in accord with so many great business leaders. I remember Jack Welch from General Electric. Yeah. He used to put as, as one of the most important things for leaders, candor. Just say it how it is instead of this political BS where they're trying to hide the truth or they're too scared of offending you or whatever. And you look at that all the time with great business leaders. And as you say, they can be good people. They can be nice people, but they're strong and they're clear in all their communications. And the old adage of criticise in private, praise in public, all those things about dealing with other people, they all apply. But on a two-way range, when things are becoming quite heated, Mm. they don't apply nearly as generously as you might think. But the blokes themselves, the diggers, could not be less interested in that nonsense because they know those sorts of uh, evocative conversations lead to casualties. Now, do do special forces use any of the kind of professional sport techniques that you hear about, mental visualisation and stuff, before missions? Is that part of it? I think you can't avoid it because... To, do, to conduct a mission, one would have to study the map, study the enemy who you're going to be facing, understand the task itself. The whole thing's a visualisation. Yeah. Receiving orders from your boss, it's a visualisation. It's set up like a visualisation. Mm. It's set up with a map table or even a mud model, a small, a scaled model of the area with the key points marked and all mm-hmm. this sort of thing. We put a lot of effort into that sort of stage management. You sit the team leaders around the model, parallel or corresponding with the area, the part of the actual battle space they're going to be working in, looking across at each other the same way they'll be looking across at each other from hill number one to hill number two on race day. The whole thing is a visualisation. Fascinating. The individual training is something that we take quite seriously so one of the the assaulters will spend weeks, months of his life just standing 10 or 20 metres away from a little A4 piece of paper and just raising a weapon and taking two shots mm. up and down. It looks dead boring. But to all of our people, it's the best investment you can ever make in keeping yourself alive and keeping your friends alive in a, a truly testy situation. Yeah. yeah, And we refer to it as muscle memory, but it's also another a version of visualisation. Mm-hmm. It's... Uh, it's very mechanical as well. It's very tactile. Yeah. Now, you uh, have had operations in the Middle East, uh, shall we say. Typically, special forces operations, I think some of the listeners would be interested in, in what exactly they would typically be. Do they tend to be, in, in modern wa- warfare for special forces, do they just come in the middle of the night and do a three-hour operation and get helicoptered out of there? Or are they more substantial things that last a few weeks? What is a typical mission for the Special Forces? Yeah, that, that's a good question. And it's 
pretty much anything that needs to be done at the risk of dodging the question, and I will sure, add, sure. I, will, I won't just leave it at that. Yeah. Special ops are defined as tactical operations with operational and strategic level consequences. So one reason you might ask special forces to do something is if it's just extremely important to government that it happen at all mm-hmm. and be handled well. It might be something that the military have not really done before. It might be something that there's no um, civil society organisation, emergency management organisation, emergency response organisation able to do that or have a legal mandate to do that. We talked about ambiguity earlier. Mm-hmm. Then you can hand it to an organisation that's comfortable with all of those sorts of characteristics and make something happen. Hunting Taliban senior leadership in Afghanistan, in Aruzgan province and in the areas around that, was that task that was handed to the Special Ops Task Group. And it, it was accomplished in a number of different ways. Some involved patrols that lasted literally weeks, where blokes would pick, find the senior leader they're looking for and then just follow this gangster for weeks at a time, waiting for him to be by himself so that he could be killed. Yeah. And that can take a long time because these guys, when they worked out that there was a, a, a severe reluctance on part of on the part of ISAF to kill the local village headman or to bomb these characters while they're visiting a school or something like that, they started to visit a lot of schools yeah. and get a lot of head, village headmen to hang out with them all day long, this sort of thing. So yeah. it's quite difficult to catch those fellas and uh, if you catch them with their guard down, you can get them. Mm. But an enormous amount of effort actually went into capturing some of these guys alive right. to bring them in and just have a talk with them about why they why are they doing what they're doing. Afghanistan's a very interesting place. People don't have the sort of connectivity with the world and the sort of trust in their own government and the sorts of things we have that give us certainty about the extent to which we're well informed and these sorts of things. I was just hanging out waiting for a flight in the Middle East a good 20 years ago. And I was having a conversation with an FBI interrogator who had been conscripted into the whole interrogation process of these these people. It, they, it was very much a catch-and-release strategy at that point, very much a counterinsurgency, not high-end warfare strategy, mm-hmm. too much collateral damage early on in the war for that sort of thing, very, very keen to minimise civilian casualties with a view to winning the population over to be loyal to the central government. So he said... The, the guys that he knew, they said going to work in the morning would mean you get into an interrogation room and there'd be an Afghan handcuffed to the table and he'd say, mate, how are you? Because <laughs> this, this is the fourth time you've interrogated this cat. Really? Yeah, yeah. That's why. Uh, so he's been caught and released three or four times. He said, mate, you're back. I thought we talked about this. Ah, come on, don't be like that. And they'd have <laughs> conversations about their children's education and what's going on in the world. They'd become almost friends. Yeah. Now, sometimes these guys... and. The whole art of the counterinsurgency thing was to have these people go home, talk to the rest of their clan and say, look, they didn't abuse me. Are you sure we can believe what the Taliban are telling us? Because it just doesn't add up. And large sectors of the population were converted quite successfully using this method. And to talk about the misunderstandings that are possible. So this guy's in there. We must be talking, I want to say... Late 2002. This must be late 2002. Mm-hmm. So we've been in Afghanistan for well over a year. He comes in to see this man who he knew personally. Yeah, I shook his hand a great time. He had photos of his, his kids. <laughs> Not making this up. It was like a reunion. Once he'd built sufficient rapport over a number of interactions, he said to this guy, why do you fight against the central government? And he said, it's for revenge. 
revenge for what? He said, Osama bin Laden is on our side because Osama bin Laden destroyed the Twin Towers on the 9th of November after you guys invaded our country. Mm. He said, hang on, mate, that's not right. In the American world, 9-11 is the 11th of September. We didn't come in here until October looking for Osama bin Laden. Mm. You need to understand that in Pashtun Wali, which is the sort of the code of conduct or the, the honour code of Pashtuns, revenge is a virtue. You right. take revenge on your enemies to be sure they understand they can't harm any other members of your family or your clan or whatever, mm -hmm. yeah? So revenge is a big deal. So they actually thought that Osama bin Laden and Al-Qaeda took revenge on the United States. Interesting. Yeah. On the 9th of November, a couple of weeks after, the, the invasion was first God. launched in October of... And he said, no, the Americans do it backwards. He said, give it a rest, mate. You think I'm a fool? Yeah. <laughs> I don't believe that. And they had a... The Afghan guy just thought it was a joke. Yeah. He had to bring in Americans, bring in American newspapers and translate some things for him and eventually convinced him that 9-11 was, in fact, September the 11th. Fascinating. Because the Americans are the only ones who do it like that. Yeah. And he went home and he converted his whole clan and brought them back over to, to be loyal to the central government. And so they ended up with infrastructure investments and everybody's quality of life went through the roof in that whole area. Fascinating. And he saw him ages later and he nudged him and he said... You want to have a word with the Americans about that date thing, mate? It's no good. <laughs> Unbelievable. Now, obviously, you're a top-level leader under high-pressure situations. What are a few tips for our listeners on how to lead well? Take a deep breath and focus on the task is a thing I would say. When things get truly ambiguous and aggressive and you can see the end is nigh all you can do is focus on right, what's right in front of you and just keep an eye on the task it's very easy when you're under pressure <clears throat> and even easier when you're dealing with people who you are either very familiar with like really close colleagues who are almost friends right or with people who are on the end of the telephone only people who are not actually in the room with you, okay? To simply become very emotional, very aggressive and blame everybody around you for all your problems versus focusing on what you and your team actually have the expertise and the resources to do about the situation here and now. Uh, I think it's Stephen Covey talks about one's circle of influence versus circle of concern. Mm -hmm. And I think when the proverbial really hits the fan, there's a temptation to focus more on one circle of concern yep. than focus like a laser beam on the circle of influence. Yeah, very good. Focus on what you can control. And often you're the only thing you can control. Yeah, very good. Yeah. Emotional chats are for the pub on a Friday night after pint number four with your mate of 20 years, not today. Yeah. Yeah, not yeah. now. Yeah, yeah, makes sense. And many good businesses have a set of values might be four criteria that they try and build the values of the business around or, or how people should act. In the special forces, do they have any kind of list of values or a series of things that all the commandos are taught? You know what? It probably is a list, but I don't know what it is. Yeah. So it's not emphasised? Not really. It's yeah. lived. Yeah. 
And I think there are some business philosophers who talk about that sort of thing. You can put a mission station up on the wall and you can, it can be as long-winded and as flowery as you like. Yep. But if you don't arrange, generally arrange incentives around encouraging people to adhere to that code of conduct, they're just mm. not going to. Yeah. Yeah, spot on. And focus on the right things too. Before SF selection, I, I ran the machine gun platoon in my battalion. Right? And uh, one of my corporals, who he was like a 30-year-old corporal, very senior, had been doing this for a long time. He said he gets pestered by people on promotion course because they have to memorise what they call the tabulated data for particular weapon systems. And he can't stand that nonsense. Mm. And he was caught out one day with uh, when someone asked him what was the weight of the MAG-58 machine gun. And Craig just said... I don't know what it weighs, mate. And this is difficult on a, an audio-only podcast, but he just put... He cupped two hands at about waist height facing the sky and said, it weighs about this much. Yeah. I don't care about that. Yeah. I care about applying the weapon's beaten zone, like the the cone of fire that comes out of a machine gun, to a piece of ground. I need to know how big those beaten zones are at different ranges. Yeah. I don't care what it weighs. Yeah. Yeah. So you, you can sometimes obsess and write down and memorise things that just don't really matter. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it makes so much sense. And in business, particularly the larger corporations, they get away with all this rubbish of all, all endless documents that, that, that say nothing. Oh, yeah. But in your line of work, you can't operate that way because no. lives are at stake. That's right, yeah. So if you have yeah, SOPs again, standing operating procedures that are not actually de-risking your current operations. Why have them? Why yeah. do it? Yeah. And uh, my friends and I have consulted private leader firms who have business continuity plans and crisis and emergency management plans that are like tomes when printed, sit on their shelves collecting dust. And uh, we say to these people, if your plan is more than about 10 pages, no one's going to read it. Yeah. Ever. Yeah. And when the proverbial hits the fan, no one's going to know what's in it. Yeah. And if you haven't rehearsed it, it doesn't matter if they have read it because they'll all interpret it to be something else. Yeah. So more pictures, fewer words, and about 10 pages, and then you've got something you can actually drive a rehearsal yeah. on. So not a visualisation. <laughs> Don't encourage your key staff to sit in their offices with their eyes shut with the thing in their hands. Yeah, yeah. Let's get out of the conference room and talk through exactly how we're going to use yeah. it. Yeah. Look, it's absolutely fascinating stuff, and truly I could ask you questions all day, but I know you've got to get back to your unit. So what have we learned today? First of all, some of the things that occur to me is the power of the OODA loop, which stands for observe, orient, decide, act. And what's, what is that all about? It's about us as business people making faster decisions. And I just love the way that is a, an absolute focus of special forces from what we've heard today. Second of all, we've heard about the importance of deep planning, another area that I think a lot of people in business just wing it. They there's no depth to their thinking. They start acting on their thinking and then they're surprised when they get a mediocre result. And I just love this military emphasis on really putting in the work into preparation, which allows you to make faster decisions. The OODA loop allows you to make faster decisions because you've done the work up front. We've heard about the importance of straight talk, how in the military, they're not mucking around. They're not trying to be overly flowery or nice in their language. They're sharp communicators. They're accurate communicators. They're not intending to be rude, but they just want to be precise. And I think we need a lot of that, a lot more of that in, in business. I love that your advice also about taking a deep breath and when you're under pressure, just focus what's immediately in front of you. 
your circle of control rather than your larger circle of influence. Just do the next best thing. And after that, the next best thing as, as well as you can. Be really present in the moment. And then finally, what really resonated for me was don't overly create rules. If we look at the size of the military, it's a giant organization compared to most companies. But what we see with the elite units, the special forces here today is they're also trying to not create too many rules, not create too many documents, too many standing operating procedures to strip it away so that only what counts is emphasized rather than just all the minutiae that doesn't help you. I just want to say huge thanks for coming here. I know you're you're super uh, time short and I know certainly myself, but all our listeners are really grateful that you've made the time we've got to hear inside Special Forces and really appreciate you coming here today, Michael. Fabulous. It's been a pleasure, Simon. The Business Lounge. Check in because you never know who's there. Disrupt Radio. On Disrupt Radio, you'll hear Megan Flamer and Alan Jones. You have a theory about accelerator programs. Yes, we've been through, well, we've mentored and coached in a few accelerator programs. Just a few. Over the years. (laughs) Whether you're just starting out or figuring out your next stage of growth, the advisory board is here to lend a helping hand. Like, what are the blind spots that we have? What are the things that you just don't know. Megan Flamer and Alan Jones have helped thousands of founders, CEOs and organisations all over the world take their lives and businesses to the next level. How are the startup ecosystems different around the world? The advisory board. If they're a casual employee, their minimum entitlements will be different to somebody that's permanent, for example. Live on DAB+. I have to be prepared to, to take constructive criticism and take it on board and listen to it and you know incorporate it. Online and on demand at disrupt.radio.